G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. And why is he nowhere to be found? Why is he Theos Absconditus, the God who hides himself, especially when I need him the most? Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining me here on Today with Jeff Vines. In this episode, we'll hear the rest of our message on spiritual winter, just one in a series of facing this challenging season of life. We're going to continue with Pastor Jeff, who's looking at what happens when Job has had enough of God. How does God react? If you can relate to this challenge, I hope you can find some real and practical guidance here in order to draw closer again to God. Let's get into it now on Today with Jeff Vines. God is forcing Job to open up within his modest stock of certainties. God is forcing Job to open up within his modest stock of certainties. It's like God is saying this, since you're the kind of man that can only believe in what he fully and completely understands, God says, stand back and let's see how much you really know. And there's this Hebrew phrase throughout this passage, and it's surely you know. It's sarcasm. God uses it too, so it must be okay. He says, surely you know, Job. Surely you know. That's the Hebrew tone written through this poetry. Job, can you explain everything about your own little planet? There are billions of stars and billions of other galaxies. I'm just going to give you the easy test. Can you even explain to me where you live? All the details? Can you explain to me how a little baby is conceived in a mother's womb by the marvelous union of a man and woman? No, I didn't think so. Can you tell me how it is that even animals take care of their young? Where were you when the sprawling mountains were put into place? And by the way, Job, can you even explain to me how all this that you so thoroughly enjoy, all of this marvelous world came into being in the first place? And here's God's point to Job. Yet, even though you don't understand it completely, you readily accept it and enjoy it every day of your life. Knowing that you are finite and trusting that somebody else is controlling and holding all this together and you just go about enjoying it. Well, Job, that somebody else is me. I'm the one controlling everything. I'm the one holding it all together. Do you know what the major difference is between you and God? God doesn't think he's you. You hear, what, you hear what God is saying to Job? Job, 
There's a thousand things you experience every day in your life for which you do not have complete and exhaustive understanding. A thousand things every day. You just accept, Job, your pain is no different. Now, if God stopped there, it would be a hollow victory, but he doesn't. That's just the first statement. And something wonderful happens in spiritual winter. I get very clear about who's in control around here. Something that would never happen in spiritual summer. In fact, when you're in spiritual summer, three very, very bad things happen. Number one is this. You start to think that you're a good boy and girl, and that's why your life is so good. I deserve all this. I've been good. I've been good. I deserve all this. Second, you have very little sympathy for anybody who's hurting because you look at them and you say, look at that, man. Their life's a mess because they deserve it probably. They deserve it because they're bad boys and girls. And third and worst of all, in spiritual summer, there's the tendency that you might start believing that you're in control. You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. But then winter comes and you come face to face with the fact that you're not running things. Somebody else is in charge. And as we saw on the upper stage, here is the question. Here's what the book of Job is about. All my life I'm thinking, and it's a short life, all my life I'm thinking, hey, it's about where's God? Where is God? But recently, it's, it dawned on me, no, the book of Job is about this. Where are you? Will you be faithful to God even when he doesn't give you what you think you deserve or need? Upon what is your faith and commitment and trust in God contingent? What would God withhold from you that would make you say, well, that's it, man. I'm not going to follow God because here's the thing about spiritual winter. It reveals authenticity. Are you the real thing? Because if you even think, if you leave God in spiritual winter, it reveals you're not the genuine article. I don't think Job ever thought of that. And there are many people in the room who have experienced spiritual winter who would never even fathom leaving God. That's not the question, Jeff. I just read a survey taken in American churches. The question was this. Describe to us the times you grew the most in your faith. Over 83% said times of pain. Times when God seemed distant and I had to search for him. Times when I realized what it was like to be without him. It's kind of like George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, who doesn't really know the value of his life until he lost it. And then he found a beautiful treasure that had been hidden and the joy returns. Please hear me on this. Some of you need to go treasure digging. You've forgotten how great and wonderful God is. So to help you rediscover that, God sends you into spiritual winter. And at first, you have trouble with any emotion. But then you get to the point where you can't feel God. God allows that to happen in hopes that you will pursue and start digging so that the end of spiritual winter will come and you will experience him in a way you've never experienced him before. You will not do that. You will not dig in spiritual summer. Jeff, what do I do then when winter comes? You dig, you seek, you keep bringing before God what is in you, not what ought to be in you. You keep searching, you keep trusting. And the Bible says something beautiful will happen. Now stay with me here, stay with me. That's exactly what Job does. He grasps for God while at the same time questioning God. There's that tension again. And as he does so, he does what people in pain do. He contradicts himself. Look what happens in Job 19 verse six. Job in this section says, know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. He blocked my way so I cannot pass. He shrouded my path in darkness. He tears me down on every side until I'm gone. And then just a few verses later, Job says, 
I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth, and I myself will see him with my own eyes, how my heart yearns within me. Do you see what he's doing? On one hand, he says, why are you doing this to me, God? On the other hand, he says, I know my Redeemer lives. He will stand up on the earth. He'll be the last one standing, and he is faithful, and he can be trusted. But why are you doing this to me, God? Contradicting himself within every moment. That's what we do when we're in pain. God wants that tension. And if you'll cling to God while experiencing the tension, something beautiful happens. You begin to understand the kind of God God really is. That's what happened. Look at this. It's beautiful. Happens to Job. Job chapter 38, 25. Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain? Now stay with me. This is, oh, this is worth a millennium here. Stay with me. Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain? To water a land where no man lives. A desert with no one in it. To satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Those lines mean very little to you and me, but they would have jumped off the page in Job's day, because Israel depended on water and rainfall. But why would God water a land where no people live? That's what Israel would have asked. And Job is learning something about God, that God is a God of gratuitous goodness. He is uncontrollably generous. He is irrationally loving. He is good when there's no reason at all to be good. Good is what God does in his spare time. It's what he does with his weekends. It's because that's what God likes to do, to be good for no reason whatsoever. And so what does he do according to the book of Job? He sends streams of living water flowing out of sheer exuberant generosity. There's a wilderness where no one lives, and yet it is full of beauty and grace because God sends a river, makes a river run through it. As a matter of fact, this work is really good and really interesting. God even delights in the animals that are of no use at all. Consider my friend, the ostrich. <laughs> she looks goofy. She flaps her wings. She lays her eggs and can't even remember where she put them. She doesn't even seem to be worth the investment God made. But when she runs... The Bible says she laughs at horse and rider as if to say, is that all you've got, man? Is that the fastest you can go? But here's the point. Why waste such talent on an ostrich? Ostrich doesn't need speed. And yet she has it. Oh, it gets better. God says, I made the behemoth. Most scholars believe that is a hippopotamus. Now, folks, have you ever seen a hippopotamus? Absolutely useless creatures. <laughs> My first trip to Africa, I got to go up into a place called Zambia. My father-in-law took us to a game park called a long way game park. He's in the audience, so I hope I get this story right. But I remember he's over on the side. This is when Robin and I were dating. We weren't married. He was casting a line, as I remember, down into the river, Zambezi River, I believe. About sunset, I began to hear this noise. And it was like this. And then it's like 10 of those. And then it's like 50. It's like you can hear it. It's like hundreds of, hundreds of something doing this. And I finally got the nerve. What is that? And my wife explained to me that around that time of day, hippos like to, well, get rid of their waste. It, uh, they like to extricate themselves. And as they do, they take great delight and joy in taking their tail and swishing it all over the Zambezi River. So you got hundreds of hippos and it's flying everywhere. <laughs> Why on earth would God make an animal that does that, that, does, that does that? Job chapter 40, verse 15. But here's the point. Look at this. The Bible says, look at the behemoth, the hippo. He ranks first among the works of God. 
When the river rages, he's not alarmed. He's secure. You ever seen a hippo? You'd know why. Through the Jordan should surge against his mouth. Can anyone capture him by the eyes or trap him or pierce his nose? The ancient world considered the hippo to be a chaotic animal that needed to be destroyed, a monster, but not God. The Bible says in Job 38, 19, he ranks first among the works of God. You know what this is? It's like God saying this, man, take a look at the hippo. When I made the hippo, had my A game going that day. I mean, look at the guy, look at that creature. And you would, God says, A game. A game right here with a hippo. He goes on, he says, he delights in the wild ox that will never plow. The wild donkey that will never be tamed. The mountain ghost that will give birth in secret places that man will never see. The Leviathan that no man will ever eat. Nothing on earth is his equal. Man, what's going on here? It took me ages. This, the whole section in the book of Job is about God caring for and giving to and delighting in animals and creation that aren't good for anything. And yet he does it. Why? Why would God make a world and create a world like that? Annie Dillard says, because the creator loves pizzazz. <laughs> he loves pizzazz. He revels in his creative capacity in those animals who are least strategic. The ostrich, the hippo, and yet God's having fun. It's his hobby, pizzazz. But what's the point? Do you know what God is telling Job? He's saying, Job, in spiritual winter, don't give up, man, because I'm worth it. Life and following me is worth it. There's a wonderful plan in all this that you can't see because you can't see the upper stage. And I'm going to say this twice again. Follow me. But this winter is not going to last forever. And here's what I'm asking you, Job. On the basis of what you do know, that I am gratuitously good and irrationally loving and that goodness and pizzazz, that's just what I do. On the basis of what you do know, trust me for what you do not. On the basis of what you know, Job, in spiritual winter, that I'm gratuitously good, I just like giving good stuff, and I'm irrationally loving, I love when it doesn't seem like I should, and I am filled with goodness and pizzazz on that basis of what you do know. Trust me for what you don't. You see no reason in your spiritual winter, Job, I see pizzazz. I am able to take the chaos and bring beauty and pattern, and design to it all. Okay, Jeff, I've heard you say that before. As a matter of fact, you say that all the time, but you've never answered this next question. What is the design? What is the pattern? All right, let me settle down here because I, you know how I am. When I, when I discover something like this, it just pumps. This is a passage that pumps me up. For a long time, I'm wondering, why does, why does Job record chapter 42? It's an epilogue. It almost appears anticlimactic, but it's not. God says something. He answers the question, what is God doing? What is the pattern? What is the design out of the chaos? What's he doing? It's like God says to Job, Job, not only in spiritual winter will you really begin to discover who I am. Job 42 verse 5, my ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. There is something else spiritual winter does that makes it all worthwhile. Young people, I want you to listen. I got my eyes. I'm watching you. Hear this now. Get it in your life now. It'll be so much better later. Chapter 42, verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima. You ever wonder where that word came from? There it is. 
Jemima. Not Aunt Jemima, just Jemima. <laughs> the second, Keziah, and the third, Karen Hoppick. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Now listen. For a long time, I'm thinking, you know, do you think this makes things better? I had 10 children. I lost them all in a tragedy. And you think by giving me 10 more, it's going to make that pain go away? But that's not the point. The writer is doing something very unique here. And you got to read it over and over. He gives the names of Job's daughters, but not the sons. That's unprecedented in ancient Hebrew genealogies. He gives the name of the daughters, withholds the name of the sons. And they're strange names. Usually Hebrews names, when they're given, they refer to character or virtue or some theological truth. But these names all reflect beauty. Jemima, a dove, a lovely bird. Keziah, cinnamon-prized spice. Have you ever been to a, an airport or a mall and smell cinnamon? <laughs> and then you know that God is good. Karen Huppick. Karen Huppick is a word that means horn of eyeshadow. It's like naming your daughter Maybelline. <laughs> Come over here, little Maybelline. And the Bible says their father granted them, that's Job, an inheritance along with their brothers. But in the ancient world, a father would never give inheritance to the daughters, not because he didn't love them, but sons were strategic. It was the son's responsibility to take care of the parents in their old age. If you gave money to the daughters, in effect, what you were doing was giving money to her father-in-law. It would be like taking money out of your pension fund and putting it in somebody else's. Why does the writer tell us all this? It seems anticlimactic, but it's not. Because do you know what happened to Job in winter? He became like God. And that's what happens to you. Job now delights in and gives to the least strategic creatures. He is now gratuitously good. He gives without any expectation in return. He gives to those who can give him nothing in return. He is uncontrollably generous now. He is irrationally loving. And he gives for no reason at all. Spiritual winter. For those who pursue God, it shapes them. And it makes them like God. And that's why God allows it. Old, old Satan was wrong about old Job. Can a man hold on to faith and trust and love for God in spiritual winter? You bet your life. One did, and so can you. Isn't it interesting in the line, the witch, the wardrobe, Narnia, that you have winter, but Christmas never comes. So you have the cold and the death of living things, but you never arrive at the good to which it leads. That didn't happen with Job. It was deep, it was cold, and it was dark in his soul. But in the midst of that, something happened that could have never happened in spiritual summer. Number one, he learned who God really was and is and forever will be, gratuitously good with unfathomable love. He learned that he also could become that person 
He learned who was really in control of his life, not him. There is another master. And he learned about the little child in the manger who indeed will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And no matter how deep your spiritual winter, the promise is this, God is always, always closer than you think. He is always God with us. Now, I feel like I need to kind of solidify this, so I'm going to do this. Spiritual winter, the deepest winter in my life, as I've shared many, many times, stay with me now, was the death of my mom. And every Christmas, I will remember this, and I will think of her. But in that deep, deep, dark winter, when I'm struggling and there's tension with God and me, man, I remember, I remember just begging God to show up so I could speak my mind. When I was about 30 years old, it was a summer, summer day, 4th of July party. And I've, I've shared with you how my mom kind of got me over to the side and she said, I'm, I'm worried about you, son. I said, what are you worried about me, mom? Don't worry about me, I'm fine. So I'm worried about you. She says, I know you love to study the Bible. I know you love to study the scriptures and I know you love to, love, love to read. But son, you don't have the heart of a pastor. Now, you know what you do when you're that young. You get defensive. What do you talk? How do you know? You don't know me. You're not, you know, that's what you do. Actually, you do that no matter who you are. You don't have to be a pastor. Because down deep inside, I knew she was right. Son, you don't, you don't love people the way a pastor should love people. You, you're so engulfed in, in studying the word. You just don't have a pastor's heart. But I'm praying for you. Of course, I was mad. Because I'm going to ask God to do whatever he has to do for you to have a pastor's heart. Well, he did. My mom died. She had a little devotional book with four prayer requests. And one of those requests, right at the top, that her son would develop the heart of a pastor who loves people. When my mom died, that's exactly what happened to me. You know why? Because it dawned on me that it's possible to hurt so bad and the world just keeps going on. And the vision I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, it was born out of the death of my mom because my heart changed in winter that I've got to spend my life helping people who hurt like I was hurting because I didn't know where to go. And I pray to God that this place would become that place for every one of you. Because if you will allow it in spiritual winter, if you will embrace it and be shaped by it, you will become like God. You will become like Him. And any work that needs to be done, God will do in your winter. Just let Him do it. Run to Him. Because He will never ever let you go. Ever. And if it means keeping you in spiritual winter until your eyes are opened, there'll be a rope tied to God. He won't let you slide too far down the snowy hill, but he's going to keep you there until you become like him. Father, we are grateful for the power of the book of Job and your word. Thankful for even difficult times. You never let go of Job. You revealed to him who you really were, really are. 
that you are gratuitously good, that you give to us with no expectation, that you are loving us unconditionally, those who call you Father. I pray for healing to take place in this place this morning, for lives to be changed, for eyes to be opened, for comfort. That's my prayer in spiritual winter. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for that study from the book of Job. If you're going through your own winter and feel that God is far away, I hope that's encouraged you to run towards God in this season and call on Jesus. There's more to come in this series, so please join us next time on Today with Jeff Vines. Now listen, I've been hard on Job's friends, but I've done that because I think it's important to know the role that we're gonna play in each other's lives during spiritual winter. You won't make it alone. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.